Content warning. The following episode is going to include some depictions of ancient warfare, which generally involves mass killings, some gore, and some rape. If these are sensitive subjects for you, feel free to skip around in the episode, or just skip the episode entirely, and I'll see you next time. Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 6, Trouble in Paradise, Part 1. There's a reason that Sicily is known as the jewel of the Mediterranean. From the shimmering cliffs and crystal clear seas, to the bright green pastures speckled with stubby olive, beech, and chestnut trees, to the rugged hills of loose rocky earth and dry brush, you really can't blame one for describing it as a veritable paradise. And that's not to mention the culture, the architecture, the music that the island is well known for. I mean, for all my American listeners, Sicily is actually where much of our bastardized idea of Italian cuisine comes from. But a lot of people, when they are reminded of Sicily, especially those who study history, also think of all the discord and conflict that's occurred there. Here's an example. To once again pander to my mostly American audience, we have the Sicilian Mafia. Those crime families and organizations are the foundation for the myth of the fedora-wearing, smart-mouthing, cigar-smoking, tommy-gun-toting gangster that's literally everywhere in our popular culture. Sicily is where we get people like Tony Soprano or the Godfather folks. Or, alternatively, if you're a World War II fan, which, at least in the environment I was raised in, most young boys are to some degree, you might be reminded of the invasions of Sicily by General Patton, the fighting at places like Palermo or Anzio. Or, for all the social historians out there, I haven't forgotten you, don't worry, you might think of the class struggles that the Sicilian workers faced and all the reasons they emigrated to new countries. See, there are tons of different things we picture when we think of the jewel of the Mediterranean, an island that's been fought over and seen more than its fair share of struggles over the centuries. We forget, though, or maybe we just aren't taught, that Sicily has been the center of a thousand struggles, that its coasts, pastures, and hills have been battlegrounds since the beginning of history. And our written record of this starts with the epic generational struggles between Carthage the native Sicilians, and the Sicilian Greeks. Today, we'll be learning about just a few of the seven Sicilian wars that were fought between these groups over the course of 200 years. And keep in mind, there are still four other gigantic wars we'll cover in future episodes that all involve Sicily as well. This one island is vital to the Carthaginian story. But how exactly did this all come to pass? Why was Sicily so viciously contested by various ethnic and political groups? Well, it started out for reasons that someone from any point in history could understand, really. It's the driving force behind human conflict the world over. Resources. The desire and need for resources led to colonization, first by Phoenician settlers, like we mentioned in episodes 1 and 2, and then by Greeks, which was the subject of half of episode 3. And when these different people encountered each other, and given how many Greeks treated anyone who wasn't Greek with violence, 
It's no surprise that the impersonal competition for trade and wealth evolved into serious enmity. In the next few episodes, there will be times when both Greek and Punic Sicilians will be persecuted by the other, and other times where they'll pair up against other Greeks. Atrocities are everywhere, and nobody is really innocent, well, except maybe for the native Sicils and Olympians who keep getting their land stolen. But while that might make parts of the story vexing and ambiguous to cover, it's also what makes it so three-dimensional. Everyone in these wars has a reason for what they're doing. They might just want power, or maybe they want glory, or they have a vendetta, or a relative to avenge, or they want to prove their worth to their family or their people. That's the case with a lot of historical periods, right? With the right attention to detail and dramatic flair, you can make any event read like some sort of Shakespearean epic where the human condition is always in conflict with itself. Because, well, history is just the study of human beings. So today, let's do that for a time and place that doesn't really get as much attention from most moderns as a period like the Crusades or World War II or the American Civil War, but is just as revealing and profound. And we'll cover it from a perspective rarely seen in any conventional Western history, that of Carthage. Let's do this. So, first things first. Considering that it may have been a while since you've listened to episode 4, and while we covered a lot of conquests and diplomatic exchanges at a pretty breakneck speed in that episode, it'll be prudent to quickly review how the Maganids, the trailblazers of the Carthaginian Empire, remember, came to power. So, recall that in the mid-500s BC, a Carthaginian general named Malchus instigates a war with nearby Libyan and Numidian kingdoms outside the city. He wins some small victories and then moves on to conquest in Sicily and Sardinia, where he fails miserably. The early incarnation of the Adarim sentences him and his army to permanent exile, so he leads a revolt and captures the city of Carthage, installing himself as Suffi. Malchus's control over the city is short-lived, though, because he gets assassinated by a conspiracy of statesmen, probably with Libyan ancestry or ties, who are growing worried that he'll make himself king, and are not too happy about his conquests in Libya. A period of chaos then ensues. I mean, who's going to be the Suffete now, right? Malchus has just set a precedent where you can just waltz in and seize power with the help of an army. One man, another general like Malchus, emerges victorious from the struggle. His name is Mago, and he's the founder of the Maganid dynasty. Mago, you'll remember, reformed the Carthaginian military, continued the wars against Numidia and Libya, kept the Greeks at bay in the Mediterranean, and used his influence to grant political positions to his family that would keep them in power for decades to come. As we'll see, the Maganids were scattered all throughout the Adrim and the Council of 104, and in addition, many were Rab Mahanet and Rab Kohanim. Mago dies in 530 BC, and his two sons, Hasdrubal Mago I and Hamilcar Mago I, are now in charge of the dynasty, with Hasdrubal technically having seniority over his brother. The brothers end the war with the native North Africans and agree to pay tribute to the Libyans and Numidians if they get to keep the new farmlands they've won so far. They fight Greek colonialism in North Africa and Sicily, and thwart the efforts of the Spartan prince Dorius, remember that was the brother of Leonidas, using military force. 
They also have to deal with the Persian emperors, Darius and Cambyses, who initially wanted to conquer Carthage, that was Cambyses, but in due course came to see them as a potential ally against the Greeks, that was Darius. Then, in 510, Hasdrubal is killed while suppressing a neuragic revolt in Sardinia, and Hamilcar becomes the guy behind the curtain of the whole Carthaginian state. Hamilcar's reign sees almost 20 years of stability, until he once again gets involved in Sicilian affairs. Theron, the tyrant of Acragas, a city in south-central Sicily, deposes Torillus, the tyrant of the city of Himera, on the north-central Sicilian coast. Himera, being on good terms with Carthage and its Punic cities in the west, asks Hamilcar for aid, and he answers the call. This intervention probably seemed relatively minor to Hamilcar. He would go in with his army, flex his muscles around at Theron, and get him to back off and restore Torillus to his seat. But this intervention ended up catapulting Carthage into not only a political revolution, like we talked about in episode 4, but centuries of vitriolic conflict with the Greeks. In episode 4, we covered the story of Hamilcar's invasion, march to Himera, and shocking defeat at the hands of Theron and his Syracusan ally, Gelon, in full detail. So we won't get too specific here. Long story short, though, Hamilcar is killed in battle in 480 BC. His army is routed or sold into slavery, and the Carthaginians back home freak the hell out. I said this before, but it's worth repeating. Post-Himera Carthage would never be the same. So now we're pretty much caught up to where we were in the narrative. Let's talk about the aftermath of Himera. Gelon of Syracuse was really the only Sicilian Greek tyrant that had any business even considering an invasion of Carthage, and he was satisfied enough with all the slaves and loot he had carried away from the battlefield. There was also the added bonus of the 2,000 silver talents that Carthage was paying him as a war indemnity. So as we said in episode 4, the invasion that the Carthaginians expected never came, but government reforms did. What we neglected to mention, though, is specifically what went down in the immediate years after Himera. So now, let's get into that. Upon hearing of Hamilcar Mago I's death, that's his whole title, the Magonids selected one of his sons, Hanno Mago, to be the next Suffete. Now, if you've been listening to a lot of these episodes, you might be a little surprised to hear that, right? I mean, we've discussed at length just how unforgiving the Carthaginians were to their failed generals. How the hell was anyone even related to Hamilcar able to weather the storm of public or adorim opinion? Well, we can never be sure of the details, but it seems that the magnet hand that had once held the Carthaginian state with an iron fist had now slackened its grip somewhat, but still refused to let go. So they were able to hold on to power after the chaos of 480, but our fragmented record suggests that the dynasty was on very, very, very thin ice. How thin are we talking? Well, to give you an idea, Hanno wasn't the only son of Hamilcar that we know about. Diodorus Siculus, a Sicilian Greek who will be our main source for the Sicilian Wars, tells us of another one named Gesco, who was actually banished to Sicily for the mistakes of his father Hamilcar around the same time that his brother Hanno was becoming the new Suffi. Gesco apparently committed suicide after years of living in disgrace in the Sicilian Greek city of Salinas, 
and he probably wasn't the only magnate statesman that broke under the burden of Hamilcar's shame. Now, the magnates weren't stupid. They knew that something had to be done to restore their reputation and ensure their continued domination of the Suffature and the Adarim. It is in this period that we start hearing stories of Carthaginian exploration. And yes, those are the very same stories we covered back in episode 3. Remember that guy Himilco, you know, the one who led a small fleet up to the English Channel and tapped into the tin exchange between the Celts and the Britons? Well, it's very likely that he was a Magonid himself, or at the very least, that his expedition was funded by the Magonids. But even more important is the expedition of Hanno the Navigator, who you'll recall was the Rab Mahanet who led an even bigger fleet down the coast of West Africa all the way to modern-day Cameroon. It turns out that Hanno Mago, the one we just talked about, that assumed power after his father Hamilcar's death, was most likely the very same Hanno who was so famous for his encounters with sweet-smelling trees and chimpanzees. That's something I intentionally left out of episode 3 to keep things simple. But now that we have an understanding of who the Magonids were, it really demonstrates the extent to which Hanno and his family had to go to hold on to power. And this sharp turn in foreign policy away from Sicily and further west worked for the most part. The combination of these new ventures and a further series of conquests in the North African hinterland expanded Carthage's power at home and abroad. The Magadid line remained safe, and power was successfully handed down to the next generation after Hanno and Himilco were out of the picture. With its new governmental reforms and trade networks, Carthage was doing pretty well for itself again. It might not have gotten involved in Sicily so soon, and there might not have even been the series of Sicilian wars that we're about to cover if it hadn't been for one thing, or person, rather. And that guy the catalyst for the upcoming three episodes, by the way, was the next Magonid leader that the non-interventionist generation of Himilco and Hanno had just passed the torch to. His name was Hannibal. And no, we're not talking about that Hannibal just yet. The Hannibal that we all know and love that crossed the Alps with all those war elephants and fought the Battle of Kenai and all the rest... He's from a whole other dynasty that's only going to be relevant in the last few episodes of the season. This Hannibal's full name was Hannibal Mago I, and he became the head of state a little bit before 410 BC. Now we mentioned at the beginning of the episode how we'll be trying to cover this saga of wars with the same attention to detail and almost cinematic flair of more fleshed out historical events. And to do that, we have to get into the drama, the motivations, and the characters. Hannibal Mago I is the first of these characters I'm going to introduce to you. We don't know what he looks like, we don't have any records of things that he said, but based on his future actions, we can guess and fill in the blanks a little bit. Hannibal was a man who was consumed by a sense of vengeance, and it's not hard to understand why. Think about it. Imagine your family had been in control of your glorious empire for over a century, and before you were even born, your name, your honor, your chance to prove your worth had been tarnished, already ruined by the failings of your ancestors, your grandfather, Hamilcar. And on top of that, Hannibal's father was none other than that guy, Gesco, 
the son of Hamilcar we mentioned, who killed himself while in exile in Sicily. So Hannibal grows up as the grandson of the most infamous martyr in Carthaginian history and the son of an absent father who committed suicide in shame. If that were your family tree, your family background, I think you would want some revenge on the Sicilian Greeks too. I know I would. Hannibal probably grew up honing his skills as an orator, politician, and a general, and when he came of age and was deemed fit, he most likely became the new Suffi of Carthage. Naturally, given his upbringing, Hannibal is going to be the next Carthaginian to once again turn towards Sicily. Now when we last left Sicily, it was just after the Carthaginian defeat in 480, so it will be worth examining some of the changes the island has gone through in the past 70 years before we return to Hannibal Mago's vendetta. In 478 BC, just two years after the Battle of Himera, Gelon of Syracuse had died. His brother succeeded him for a little over a decade, and after that, the city established a democratic government for a time. All the while, Syracuse continued to expand the power of their political bloc through conquest and assertive diplomacy. They took advantage of all the Greek infighting to further consolidate their rule over the eastern part of the island. Fast forward 50 years or so to 416 BC, to an age-old feature of Sicilian politics that always piqued Carthaginian interest whenever it occurred. There was yet another war between the rival cities of Greek Salinas and Elymian-founded Segesta. I called it Segesta in an earlier episode. I'm going to go with Segesta for the rest of this. If those two names sound familiar to you, it's because they should be. We mentioned a similar war in a previous episode that happened a century earlier, where a Greek statesman of Salinas, claiming to be descended from Heracles, attacked nearby Segesta for land, and also, well, because as a Limian native to Sicily, the Segestans were a natural target for Greek colonists. Carthage had actually helped fund the armies of Segesta at that time, because they and their Punic cities had a much more cooperative and trade-based relationship with the natives, and if the natives are gone, there's really no one to trade with besides the Greeks, and the Greeks are pretty aggressive. In the intervening years between that war and this one in 416, tensions were high and border skirmishes were happening regularly. This time, though, the nemesis between Segesta and Salinas spilled over into greater Mediterranean affairs. This is going to take a little bit of explaining, but just hear me out, because it's actually pretty interesting. The years after 480, when Syracusan power went pretty much unchecked by the Carthaginians, had allowed Syracuse to subject more cities to one-sided alliances and treaties. One of these cities was Salinas. So in 416, when Salinas starts marching west, Segesta panics under the pressure of potentially facing the Syracusan-backed Salinantines, that's their plural name, and requests aid from pretty much every major power that will listen. Carthage actually refuses this initial supplication, but to the east, there's another powerful city that takes up arms for Segesta instead. We're talking about the foremost city-state of the Greek world, Athens. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with ancient Greek history, this may seem like it's coming out of left field. Why does Athens care in the slightest what's going down in Sicily? Weren't they kind of busy fighting off the Persians in the 400s? 
Well, they certainly were, but the Greco-Persian Wars only lasted for really the first quarter of the 400s. A decade before the Battle of Himera in 490 BC, the mainland Greeks fought at Marathon. Around the same time as Himera in the 480s and early 470s, the Greeks were fighting at Plataea in Salamis, where they ultimately drove the Persians off for good. But later in the 400s, with the disappearance of a common imperial foe, the Greek city-states slipped right back into their old habits of squabbling and waging petty wars on each other. The later part of the 400s, from the 430s to the turn of the century, saw the Peloponnesian War, which was a conflict between the Athenian-run Delian League of the North and the Spartan-backed Peloponnesian League of the South. It's way more complicated than that, but we really don't have time to get into it. Well, towards the middle of the off-and-on 30-year conflict, the Athenians really weren't doing so hot, and the leaders of Athenian democracy were looking for ways to stop the Spartan advance in their tracks. So one Athenian politician in particular, a guy by the name of Alcibiades, or the correct way of saying it, which I'll say is Alcibiades, decided that instead of attacking the Peloponnesian League, head-on he was going to sidestep them and go after their supply lines. After all, Napoleon was speaking a universal truth when he said, an army marches on its stomach. So Alcibiades plans an invasion of who else but Syracuse. The idea is that not only is Syracuse giving large shipments of grain to Sparta, but there's also a ton of wealth, slaves, and loot to be gained from taking the city. Resources that Athens could use to stay afloat and keep the war effort going. So, much like how some conflict in a small developing nation can pull the great imperialist powers of the modern world into a war with each other, the Selenitines' decision to attack the Segestans led to a large-scale invasion of one of the most powerful Greek city-states by another. And the result? An absolute disaster for Athens. The expedition, which lasted from 415 to 413 BC, was disorganized from the very beginning. Delian League generals argued with each other over how they wanted to attack, and when they finally settled on a plan and launched the invasion, Alcibiades, who was kind of the mastermind behind the whole thing and was supposed to be leading it, had to pack up and leave in the middle of the journey because he was in political hot water back home. When the Athenian army and their Delian League allies finally landed, they were subsequently routed in a series of battles until Sparta came and intervened and catastrophe fully ensued. Not exactly Aos Kibiades or Athens' proudest moment. And for the upteenth time, you may find yourself asking, okay, but what does this have to do with Carthage? Well, they were watching all this from the sidelines, and the whole thing proved to them that Syracuse was a serious threat. I mean, think about it. Syracuse and its allies had just taken on the same alliance that decades before had defeated the Achaemenid Persian Empire. That'll get you to look at them differently, won't it? After Athens retreated from Sicily and left the picture in 413 BC, Segesta was still in danger from Salinas. The Selenians once again declared war on the Segestans in 411 BC, and this time Carthage was not going to sit idly by and let that happen. And the reason they were so interventionist this time around was 
because of none other than Hannibal Mago I. In that same year, pretty much immediately after taking office, Hannibal steered the Adrim towards sending immediate aid to Segesta. Salinantine armies had already crossed the border and were looting and burning the area. Bodies were piling up and refugees were already flocking westward to the city. Carthage first sent a delegation to Syracuse basically saying, hey, we really need to go in and help Segesta. Will you promise not to retaliate if we send troops? And Syracuse actually agreed, probably because, you know, half of Greece had just tried to invade them a few years ago, and the more soldiers they could keep in their walls, the better. And so it was that roughly 6,000 Carthaginian mercenaries were sent to intercept the forces of Salinas. And remember, during the Battle of Himera in 480, the opposing sides had armies in the tens of thousands, so this conflict is definitely in the minor leagues of Sicilian warfare. But it's not going to stay that way. Those Carthaginian troops actually caught the Selenantines unawares. Many of them were killed and all were driven out of Segestan territory. But this brazen intervention of Carthage convinced the Syracusans in turn that they had to join the fray, or risk looking like they couldn't protect their allies. And Hannibal, who had probably anticipated this reaction, was ready. He hounded the Adrim, and especially the Council of 104, in session after session, until they finally agreed to grant him an army. Personally, I picture him making abrasive, passionate speeches that use rhetoric to stir the crowds like some Carthaginian Winston Churchill type of figure. When they relented, he spent the rest of the year in Libya, and then across the sea in Iberia, remember modern-day Spain, recruiting and training a huge army for the coming spring. Powerful siege weapons and a fleet of transports and warships were rapidly constructed, and in 410, Hannibal set off ready to fulfill his lifelong dream, avenge his grandfather and father, and restore glory to the Magadan name. And I'll say it again, Hannibal has been preparing his entire life for this. Alongside his festering hatred for Syracuse, he's also been scheming and scrutinizing just how he's going to defeat them for years now. So when he lands with his army at the western Punic city of Lilibium, it's full steam ahead, no hesitation. He marches as fast as humanly possible to Salinas because he's learned from the mistakes of his grandfather, Hamilcar Mago, remember, was up against two separate armies back at Himera in 480, and it was only when those armies flanked the Carthaginians on two sides that they were defeated. Hannibal Mago knows this. He's not going to fall for it again, so he wants to get to Salinas as soon as possible, link up with his Segestan allies and their forces and the Carthaginians that are already there, and take the city with overwhelming speed and brutality before the Syracusans can come and stop him. Well, everything goes according to plan. When he arrives at Lilibium, he assimilates the forces of Segesta, who are waiting for him there, and other Punic allies with his main army, which now, according to probably inflated Greek estimations, is something like 200,000 people strong. But even take half that number and it's still a crazy amount of people. I mean, like most of us, if we're looking at 100 to 200,000 people, we couldn't even tell the difference is that big. The Selenantines had cavalry units scouting the area, and when they see this, they immediately freak out and send word to Syracuse to get the hell over here, the Carthaginians are coming, and they have a huge army. 
and Hannibal, knowing that all eyes are now on him, lets these Selenian teen scouts see him do something else too. He orders his warships, he's got about 60 of them, to head to Motia, that's a Punic city on the western coast of Sicily, remember, and just stay on standby, as if to say to the Syracusans back all the way over the east, look, I'm not gonna sail over and invade you, see, this isn't about you, don't make it about you. With all that done, Hannibal marches over to Salinas and besieges it, while the Syracusans are still en route. So far in this season, in this narrative, we've mostly seen the Carthaginians do things like explore, trade, perfect the art of sailing, that kind of thing. Seems to be what they're good at, right? Well, now we get to see this distinct, fascinating Carthaginian military tradition in action. Hannibal gets his siege engines, which Diodorus Siculus describes as these massive battering rams that are covered in a layer of iron, like something out of Sauron's army from Lord of the Rings, up against the walls ASAP. The Carthaginians also have these six multi-story siege towers that they can use to fight from a distance so they don't have to worry about the defenders on the battlements being on a high ground compared to them. He splits up his army into two different groups so that the garrison of Salinas constantly has to split their attention between different parts of the walls. And when the Selenian team defenders start harassing the siege operators and uh, these guys that are called sappers, basically they're soldiers whose job it is to mess with the integrity of enemy fortifications, well, when he sees the defenders doing this by raining down arrows and javelins and stones on his guys, Hannibal just has his army give it right back. He'll bring out his archers and slingers, which modern people have the tendency to laugh at, but remember folks, if a well-placed stone can put a dent in your skull, what will a maelstrom of them raining down on you do? So these ranged missile troops will either stand on the siege towers or on the ground with a decent angle and exchange fire with the defenders to demoralize them and make it easier for the rams and the siege operators to do their job in peace. The people of Salinas knew that Syracuse wasn't going to make it in time. They knew that if they didn't give their heart and soul to the cause, their fates would be sealed. So that's exactly what they gave. The young manned the walls and skirmished with the Carthaginians while the old hurried back and forth with more missiles and supplies to repair the walls with. The women of the city were in charge of feeding the ragtag citizen army, and everyone held out hope that at one hour or another, they would see the Syracusan army in the distance bearing down on their besiegers. But that hour never came. The main Carthaginian assault took only a single day. The first to break through the walls was a unit of Italian troops fighting for Carthage, who rushed into the city and started a melee with the defenders. This struggle lasted the entire afternoon and into the evening. Try and imagine the amount of pure adrenaline that must have taken. Fighting all out for your life for hours at a time has to be one of the most exhausting human experiences out there, one that not too many of us now have dealt with. Well, that Selenian teen adrenaline must have paid off, as it so often does when you're literally fighting not to see everyone you know and love be slaughtered, because they actually drove these Italian mercenaries back. And to be fair to these uh, Italians who were called Campanians, Diodorus Siculus points out the fact that fighting in the dusty, rubble-strewn breach of a stone wall didn't help their case either. 
So at dusk, Hannibal ordered their retreat. The Selenians used the brief respite that came with darkness as an opportunity to put their best riders on their fastest horses and have them haul ass over to not just Syracuse, but also to the Syracusan allied cities of Akragas and Gela, and get them to hurry things up. Unfortunately for Salinas, it was only going to get worse from here, though. Early the next morning, Hannibal resumed the assault. This time, he brought in more rams and siege towers and crashed them into either side of the breach to create an even wider hole in the wall that he could maneuver more men into. To distract from these efforts, he ordered detachments to assault the walls on the other sides of the city, so the defenders' attention was split. Once this was done, he had men clear out all the rubble and refuse while under guard from his elite infantry and the covering fire of his ranged units. You can really tell from Diodorus Siculus's account that Hannibal had done his homework. I guess the only thing that beats Adderall is a decades-long thirst for vengeance. At this point, it was total war. The sources describe it as a human meat grinder of a battle. The defenders refused to budge for nine days, but Hannibal just kept cycling his worn-out troops with fresh ones from the reserve, and the exhausted Selenians fell back into the narrow streets of their city. A Stalingrad-esque house-to-house, block-to-block slog ensued. Women threw roof tiles down at the Carthaginians from the tops of buildings, and civilians would ambush their attackers from hidden alleys, but this only further exhausted them, and what followed was an indiscriminate rout. The remaining Selenian teens made their last stand in the Agora, which was the central market and meeting place of a Greek city. There they fought to the last man, while the entire city was looted by the enraged soldiers. And we just described in detail the terror that overtook the Selenian teens that would overtake anyone in that situation. But what about the soldiers on the Carthaginian side? I mean, they've been attacking this damn city for weeks now, right? They've had missiles thrown at them, they've seen their friends die. Every hour that the defenders didn't surrender must have added another layer of intense frustration. And top that all off with the hyper-masculine environment of the ancient army camp, and you have a recipe for butchery. The emotions of both sides of this conflict just ooze out of the pages. And that includes the obvious bias against the Carthaginians and sympathy for the Greeks that Diodorus Siculus shows. I mean, let me just read you the passage in which he describes all of this, the sack of Salinas, because He's the one closer to the actual event, after all. Diodorus Siculus writes, quote, And so, while the city was being taken, there was to be observed among the Greeks lamentation and weeping, and among the barbarians, that's the Carthaginians and their mercenaries he's talking about there, there was cheering and commingled outcries, for the former, as their eyes looked upon the great disaster which surrounded them, while the latter, elated by their successes, urged on their comrades to slaughter. The Selenians gathered into the marketplace, and all who reached it died fighting there, and the barbarians, scattering throughout the entire city, plundered whatever of value was to be found in the dwellings, while of the inhabitants they found in some of them they burned together with their homes, and when others struggled into the streets, without distinction of sex or age, but whether infant children or women or old men, they put them to the sword, showing no sign of compassion.
They mutilated even the dead according to the practice of their people, some carrying bunches of hands which they had spitted upon their javelins and spears. Such women as they found who have taken refuge together with their children in the temples, they called upon their comrades not to kill, and to these alone did they give assurance of their lives. This they did, however, not out of pity for the unfortunate people, but because they feared lest the women, despairing of their lives, would burn down the temples, and thus they would not be able to make booty of the great wealth which was stored up in them as dedications. To such a degree did the barbarians surpass all other men in cruelty, that whereas the rest of mankind spare those who seek refuge in the sanctuaries from the desire not to commit sacrilege against the deity, the Carthaginians, on the contrary, would refrain from laying hands on the enemy in order that they might plunder the temples of their gods. By nightfall the city had been sacked, and of the dwellings some had been burned and others razed to the ground while the whole area was filled with blood and corpses. Sixteen thousand was the sum of the inhabitants who were found out fallen, not counting the five thousand who had been taken captive. End quote. No modern historian writing about an event this long ago could muster that kind of emotion or drama. Maybe they could do it for some battle in World War II or a shocking terrorist attack, but not for something this old. To write like Diodorus Siculus just did requires generational trauma and a hatred instilled by propaganda. And speaking of propaganda, most of those gory details were very likely exactly that. Now, of course, this sack of Salinas was not at all peaceful. I mean, there was certainly butchery, burning, and rape going on. Most historians doubt the veracity of some of those more extreme acts of violence, though. I think that particular line about the Carthaginians not sparing those who escaped inside of temples and sacred sites is an outright lie, especially considering how much we've already covered how interconnected Carthaginian religion was with the Greek pantheon. But nevertheless, we can't forget that it's Hannibal Mago leading the siege, and he wasn't playing nice. By the end of that day, the city was eerily silent aside from the smoldering ruins, and at dawn, 5,000 slaves were marching alongside the army out of the empty city. Hannibal's next target was probably the one he had obsessed over the most back in his years growing up in Carthage. He was headed straight to the city of Himera, the site of his grandfather's defeat and the symbol of his family's shame. And he would be satisfied with nothing less than reducing it to a field of ashes. Upon his arrival on the hills where his grandfather had once been cut down, Hannibal used an approach similar to Hamilcar's strategy at Himera in 480. He made camp with a good chunk of his army on the hilltop overlooking the city, where he could monitor all surrounding activity and avoid an ambush like the one that had killed Hamilcar Mago. The rest of his force, combined with native Sicilian troops that had joined up with him looking for an opportunity to kill some Greeks of course, well, he had them get to work breaking down the walls. From the first day of the siege and onwards, the same rams from Salinas were used so effectively that they literally shook the fortifications of Himera. Meanwhile, Carthaginian sappers were busy trying to create holes wherever they could with a technique that involved damaging a segment of the wall, then repairing it with wooden beams and scaffold, 
only to set the repairs on fire. This sudden renewed loss of structural integrity would cause the breach to widen even further. It sounds kind of counterintuitive at first, but it's actually a pretty crafty way of bringing down a giant stone structure. Supporting these efforts were wave after wave of Carthaginian ranged troops who skirmished with the defenders like they had at Salinas. All of this ended up working pretty well, and soon the Carthaginians were in an infantry battle inside a narrow gap of the walls, fighting the Himeran garrison hand to hand. A force from Syracuse and Acragas had finally made their way up north as well, and their support was making things even more difficult for Carthage. Well, one night, after Hannibal called off the attack for that day and sent his men back to their camps, the Himerans decided enough was enough. They had heard what Hannibal had done to Salinas, and they did not want to perish in the same ignominious manner, as Diodorus Siculus calls it. So they gathered up all their forces and the soldiers from Acragas and Syracuse and rushed out of the city in a move that's called sallying forth or sallying out in military science. Now think about how blindsided you would be if you were one of those Carthaginian soldiers and camped outside the walls. It's the middle of the night, maybe you're already asleep, maybe you're with your comrades having a drink or something around the fire, and all of a sudden, you can hear the screaming war cry and pounding footsteps of 80,000 desperate defenders getting closer and closer and closer. You have to instantly switch from relaxation mode to, oh shit, I better get in formation or we're all about to die mode. Well, the disordered Carthaginian mass started fleeing back up to the hill where Hannibal was encamped with about 40,000 infantry. By this time, he'd woken up and had a chance to survey the situation. So he organizes the men in the camp and marches out to meet the Hamerans, who, having given chase this far, are caught up in the opportunity to kill their besiegers and aren't in any formation themselves. So they just get the same treatment that they were just dishing out like an hour ago. And with all the civilians of Hamera watching this unfold from the battlements, Civilians who were just cheering their men on not that long ago, the Hamerans chaotically flee back into the city and a large number of them get picked off or slain in the process. That didn't go so well. So for the next few days, the Hamerans are stuck inside the city. Morale is dangerously low after the failed counterattack and the forces of Hannibal are now regrouped. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, a small fleet of ships is spotted on the coast. And remember, Himera is located on the very northern edge of Sicily. This fleet is made up of 25 triremes from Syracuse, who have just returned to Sicily from mainland Greece, where they were fighting on the side of the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War. Makes sense, given all we talked about about the Peloponnesian War and the relationship between Syracuse and Sparta, right? Upon hearing of Hannibal's invasion, they naturally rushed over to Himera to see what they could do for their Greek comrades. They lay anchor in the harbor and meet with the leaders of the Syracusan and Akrogatani army in the city to discuss next steps. Now, the commander of the Syracusan force is a guy named Diocles, and he knows that Syracuse is currently sending a massive army north to go meet Hannibal in battle. He also knows, because of those Selenian scouts we mentioned a while ago, remember them? Hannibal had docked his warships in the Punic city of Motia. 
So Diocles realizes that Hannibal has them in a bind. The longer these 25 triremes stay at Himera, and the closer the Syracusan army gets to Himera, the more vulnerable the city of Syracuse is to attack by Hannibal's fleet. Ships, after all, move much faster than ground forces. So by splitting up his naval and land forces, Hannibal is compelling his enemies to overextend themselves in turn to avoid an attack. Frustrated, but resigned to this reality, Diocles tells the Syracusan fleet to sail back to their home immediately. Despite the outrage of the Hameran citizens, half the city's population was put on the triremes, while the other half, made up of the strongest and most able to fight, would hold out until more Syracusan ships could come rescue them. These defenders waited two days for respite, bearing the attacks of Hannibal into the breach, and according to Diodorus Siculus, right when the ships were spotted in the distance, units of Iberian swordsmen and hoplites overpowered the Himerans and made their way into the city. That is really bad timing. That was the beginning of the end for Himera. Hannibal ordered that all those who surrendered be captured and enslaved and let his men take everything of value from the city. Then he burned it down and apparently led 3,000 of the great men of Himera to the spot where Hamilcar Mago, his grandfather, had perished and tortured them to death. Now obviously that last bit is up for a debate. Is that just Greek propaganda or was Hannibal really that fueled by his hatred? Honestly, I doubt the veracity of the claim, but I'm willing to bet anything that atrocities were definitely committed in Himera, and Hannibal made sure there was vengeful symbolism in every action he took. And with that, Hannibal Mago I's job was done. He returned to Carthage later in 409 and was met with an ecstatic crowd that proclaimed him one of the greatest generals in Punic history, which, let's face it, at least in this era, he really was. But every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Hannibal had just wiped two Sicilian cities off the map, and although the former inhabitants of Salinas and Himera, or at least what remained of them, were still reeling, many in Syracuse were ready for a fight. The first Syracusan to put his money where his mouth was, though, was a guy named Hermocrates. This guy is another fascinating character in this saga, who, like Hannibal Mago, seems like he belongs right in the middle of a Shakespearean drama. Let's get into his backstory. Now, do you remember those 25 triremes we brought up for a few minutes ago? The ones that belonged to Syracuse but were over in Greece fighting for the Spartans? Well, they weren't the only ones. Hermocrates was a Syracusan admiral who had just spent years leading a fleet of 35 triremes against the Athenians in the Delian League as well. Unfortunately for him, though, his distinguished service in the Peloponnesian War had made him a lot of jealous enemies, who apparently had stripped him of his command and had him exiled. When Hermocrates returned home and learned that Syracuse had no plans to go after Hannibal, he was furious with their complacency. Using money he earned during his years abroad, he hired a small army and constructed five triremes. Then he went around recruiting any Himeran survivors who had been scattered all throughout Syracuse and eastern Sicily, stirred up a frenzy of righteous anger within them, and led this assortment on a march to the Punic cities in the west. 
Arriving at the ruins of Salinas, so recently destroyed, Hermocrates used the area as a forward operating base of sorts. He and his men raided the lands near Motia and Panormus, and when the garrison of Motia actually came out to fight back, he whipped them pretty easily. At first, the politicians back in Syracuse were incredulous with Hermocrates. I mean, can you imagine if some general from your country just went rogue and started instigating wars with your international neighbors? Well, I kind of can because we had a vice president who did the same thing within my lifetime, but I digress. With every success that he saw, though, his obviously illegal behavior became justified in the court of public opinion, and soon, the Sicilian Greeks were all cheering him on. While Hannibal Mego was home resting on his laurels, the Carthaginian government deployed some mercenaries they had stationed on the island to go deal with Hermocrates. He brushed them aside pretty easily and made his way back to Syracuse, where he ended up being assassinated by those same political enemies that had lost him his admiralship. But hey, he was fun while he lasted, right? Well, in the meantime, the Council of 104 back in Carthage knows Syracuse is planning some sort of move against them soon, so they try and broker an alliance with Athens, who, remember, had just failed spectacularly in their Sicilian expedition not too long ago. It would have been a way of saying to the Syracusans, hey, don't try anything funny because we've got you surrounded from both sides. But unfortunately for Carthage, Athens didn't take the deal. The Peloponnesian War was not going well for them towards the end of it, after all. And then Syracuse sent Carthage an ultimatum. They were to give up their imperial seat over western Sicily, that means Motia, Panormus, all those Punic cities that were founded centuries ago, or risk an all-out war with Syracuse. No more messing around. The gauntlet was thrown, and Carthage accepted. The Adarim and the Council of 104 voted Hannibal, now settled into his routine as Suffit, as Rob Mahanet, the general of the Sicilian theater. It was with reluctance that he accepted, and he only agreed to the terms if a second Rob Mahanet was in the field co-managing the campaign with him. And if you think that seems like a strange request from the Hannibal we've gotten to know so well, you'd be right. I mean, would Hannibal Mago, of all people, really pass up another chance to go to Sicily again with a brand new army? Well, maybe he was enjoying the luxuries of the capital more than he had the banalities of military camp life. Perhaps he was starting to feel old age creeping up on him. Or maybe his bloodlust for the Greeks had been satisfied and he was still mentally exhausted from his previous expedition. Or he might have felt some guilt for his brutal treatment of Salinas and Himera, and he was afraid of losing control again. I really wish we had some more contemporary sources on all this to flesh these possibilities out. But whatever the case, another magnate, Rob Mahanet, was appointed as his colleague for the venture. This magnate was Himilcar Mago, who was the son of Hanno Mago. Remember that Hanno was Hannibal Mago's uncle and the Suffete who had ruled before him, which makes this a sort of bonding trip between two cousins. And if all those names were confusing to you, don't worry, you aren't the only one. While I was actually researching this, I made a nifty little magnate family tree to help me keep track of the whole narrative. For a brief review, you have Hamilcar Mago, the guy who died at Himera in 480, talked about that in episode 4 and the beginning of this episode. His two sons were Hanno and Gesco Mago, 
Hanno succeeded him as Suffet and was probably Hanno the Navigator from Episode 3. In that same generation, there was also a magnet cousin named Himilco who explored Northern Europe. Hanno Mago, Hanno the Navigator, had a son, Himilcar Mago, and Gesco, his brother's son, was Hannibal Mago. Hannibal Mago, of course, is the guy we've been talking about for most of this episode, and it's these two cousins, Hannibal and Himilcar, who will lead the Carthaginian army in the second half of the Second Sicilian War. Hopefully that's a little bit more clear now. But back to our story. In 407 and early 406, Himilcar and Hannibal Mago, like Hannibal had done earlier in 411, traveled across North Africa and Iberia, gathering conscripts, volunteers, and mercenaries. The Adrim and the Council of 104 helped by sending delegates to Italy and Libya to recruit. More transport ships and an even larger fleet of warships than last time were assembled. In 406 BC, Hannibal and Himilcar crossed over to Sicily. But unlike Hannibal's last invasion, things didn't go exactly as planned. When they neared the Sicilian coast, part of the Carthaginian fleet, which Hannibal had sent ahead to ensure a safe crossing, was ambushed by Syracusan warships. 15 out of 40 Carthaginian ships were lost. That's a huge blow. The rest of the fleet managed to escape to safer waters, and when they relayed the news of their defeat back to Hannibal, he countered by reinforcing them with 50 more triremes. The naval capabilities of Carthage are just insane, and I actually have an episode planned that will get into that a lot more, so stay tuned. Anyway, when word of Hannibal's reaction spread to Syracuse, they realized that this time they weren't just going up against Carthage indirectly. They would have to bear the full weight of the onslaught now. So they sent envoys to Greece and southern Italy requesting aid, especially from Sparta, who really owed them one after all that grain and all those ships they gave them. Akragas, the second most powerful city on the island, well, Greek city that is, made their own preparations. See, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but Akragas, today called Agrigento, was on the southern coast of Sicily, slightly west of the center. This made it the closest of the major Greek cities to Carthaginian holdings, and thus an obvious first target. So the Agrigentani took precautions. They gathered as much livestock, grain, and fruits from their countryside as they could and completely closed off the city, determined not to fall as quickly as Salinas or Himera had. It turns out that this was exactly the right instinct, because Akragas was where Hannibal and Himilcar made their beeline. You can kind of tell that Hannibal is in the tactical driver's seat of this whole operation, so to speak, because of the strategy Carthage employed during the siege of Akragas. Or who knows, maybe this was just a common thing in Carthaginian military tradition. What I mean is that once again, we see Hannibal and Himilcar split up their forces into two coordinating camps on different sides of the city, probably to divide the attention of the defenders. When this was all set up, Hannibal, Himilcar, and a delegation of Carthaginians approached the walls of Akragas and said something along the lines of, Hey guys, let's make a deal. You have three options here, the way we see it. The first is you join us. You know, you add your grain and all your foodstuffs to our supply chain. 
You merge your army with us, we'll give you great trading rights like all the native Sicilian and Punic cities in the West get. It'll be a win-win situation. But hey, we realize that might be a bit idealistic. I mean, we just spent the last few years devastating your allies in battle. You're under some obligations here, you know, your honor as Greeks commands you to resist us. We understand. So, your second option is just don't attack us. Just keep things like it is in peacetime. Business as usual, we'll just move on, we'll go deal with Syracuse and the rest of your allies. No hard feelings, no harm done. Or, you could take the third option. And the third option is, we put siege towers up against your walls. And if you lose, we kill all the men, we enslave all the women, and we take all your stuff. All bets are off. I mean, that's the usual outcome of this type of situation in the ancient world. You would do the same thing to us if you had the situation flipped. Well, the Agrocatani chose to gamble with the third option, which, let's face it, what else did Carthage expect? Well, good question. Who really knows? I mean, Carthaginian foreign policy was usually much more diplomatic than that of the Greeks or Romans, and that was probably a microcosm of their culture. Resigned to what they now must do, Hannibal and Himilcar decide to attack a weak point in the wall of Akragas with their siege towers. A day of heavy losses for the Agrocatani passes, but that night, they even the odds somewhat. The leaders of Akragas hadn't just prepared for siege by hoarding supplies, they had also been busy gathering mercenaries from Sparta, Italy, and other Sicilian cities, we kind of mentioned Syracuse was doing that for them, who were now led by a Spartan commander and stationed on a nearby hill. These men, along with some defenders inside the walls, snuck out that night and set the siege towers on fire, putting them out of commission. Now Hannibal has to adopt a strategy to conform to this new situation at hand. I mean, if he deploys more siege towers, what's going to stop Akragas from using fire to their advantage once more? No, instead, Hannibal opts for a more decentralized assault. He orders that the temples and larger buildings surrounding the city be dismantled so that their remains can slowly be piled up into great mounds at certain areas around the walls. Over time, the Carthaginians would be able to scale the battlements with relative ease, or at least that's the idea. And for a while, this strategy was actually working. That was until the plague hit. Now, if we were looking at the story from a purely scientific perspective, we would say that the Carthaginians were dealing with an outbreak of typhoid or something similar. And perhaps there was something about Carthaginian camp life or military procedure that was susceptible to illness, because this isn't the only time a similar plague is going to well plague a Carthaginian army during the Sicilian Wars. But there are other perspectives that matter here. What about the magical? Diodorus Siculus claims that this outbreak was a punishment, that Apollo, the god of plagues, smited Hannibal and his men for their impiety. Remember, he was going around destroying a ton of temples. And he goes on and on layering the foreshadowing for this plague and talking about all the disastrous omens that the Kohanim that were in the army detected with their scrying. And this religious element is arguably just as important to our historical analysis as the sort of biological, scientific one. Because remember, stuff like this, the beliefs of the people involved in history, affects how those people behave. Remember when I said magic is tangible back in episode 1? 
Well, here's a perfect example. Because it turns out that Hannibal doesn't survive this outbreak. He dies soon after, and that leaves Himmelkar, a maggoted with significantly less experience in the field, in charge of the whole operation. Now that would be a big hit to an army's morale, even in a secular time and place. But in a culture where magic and things like divine curses were just taken for granted, the death of a suffete by plague right after such an auspicious action must have been more than disheartening. And conversely, seeing their enemies ravaged by sickness would have been encouraging to the Agricatani, a sign from the heavens that they were on the winning side. But then that kind of begs the question, how do you even quantify the tangible effect on the siege of something like the death of such an important figure when you just have an account from Diodorus Siculus? Well, you can't, which is what makes history such an inexact science, but also so damn compelling. And speaking of hard to quantify but compelling factors and all this, what about the effect that the death of Hannibal Mago had on Himmelkar Mago's psyche? I mean, not only was this his cousin, someone he probably grew up with, but Hannibal was also the most famous Carthaginian political figure of his day. This was the guy that saw unprecedented victories in Sicily, restored the prestige of his family, and avenged their grandfather, all in the span of a couple years. Now he's dead, and Himmelkar has some gigantic shoes, or rather sandals, to fill. I know I wouldn't want to be in his position right now. So Himmelkar takes some time for contemplation. He conducts a ritual that involves the sacrifice of some cattle, or if you believe Diodorus Siculus, a young boy, and prays to a god that was probably Baal Hamon or Baal Sapon. And having now internalized his duty, he gets to work finishing the job that Hannibal started. But as the siege of Akragas resumes, the Syracusans in the east are just as busy. They've been gathering an army of 30,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry made up of units from all over Magna Graecia to put an end to Himilcar's assault. When word reaches Himilcar of this new foe, he sends about 40,000 Iberian infantry to go head them off. The Syracusan army wins the engagement that inevitably takes place when these two groups meet east of Akragas, and they start chasing a now disordered Carthaginian force westwards. But before they completely break ranks themselves, the Syracusan general orders the chase to stop. Remember, something very similar had happened to the Greeks not too long ago at Himera. Remember when the defenders rushed outside into the Carthaginian camp at night, and then got slaughtered when the Carthaginian order in the lines was restored? While eager to not have a repeat of that disaster, the leadership of Syracuse ordered a slow advance that eventually met up with the defenders of Akragas and circled Himilcar and put his siege camp under siege. Now, if I were Himilcar and I was now surrounded on all sides by people I had once surrounded myself not too long ago, I would start having some serious doubts about my own leadership. That's a real test of self-worth and confidence, isn't it? And now that all his men were stuck in the camp, with any foragers being hunted down by Greek cavalry patrolling the nearby wilderness and roads, the army was slowly running out of food. 
Plus, you had the whole plague thing, which was still making the rounds in such a confined space. But fortunately for Himmelkar, all was not lost. Far from it, actually. See, because the Syracusans had been so cautious with their advance, those 40,000 Iberians had managed to escape relatively intact. So the Carthaginians had the numerical advantage, because of course those Iberians just fled back to the camp before it got surrounded. Moreover, they weren't the only ones having trouble keeping their men fed. Syracuse and their army had now resorted to importing grain to the site of the encirclement by ship. And oh, by the way, remember all those provisions that Akragas had consolidated inside the city before the siege even took place? Well, they were pretty much used up by now. Probably because there were an extra 35,000 men that the Agrakatani had to share with. So now, both sides are almost out of food, and it's really coming down to just a contest to see who will capitulate first. Here's where Himmelkar is able to turn the tides in his favor, though. Somehow, and we aren't sure where he got this information, we're kind of relying on one major account here, Himmelkar is well aware that his enemies are transporting food by sea. He also happens to learn, perhaps by a few well-placed spies or scouts, that's how I'd guess, the actual day that 15 new transports are going to bring in the next shipment of grain for the Syracusans and Agrakatani. So he sent for his warships docked back at Motia and Panormus to head over and capture all that grain for the Carthaginians. 40 Carthaginian warships rolled up on these transports right as they were approaching the army they were supposed to feed. With these supplies and grain now in the hands of the Carthaginians, many of the Italian mercenaries that Syracuse and Akragas had hired, wanting to be fed and kind of reevaluating who actually had the upper hand in this conflict, went over to the Carthaginian side for a measly bribe of 15 silver talents that Hamilcar was more than happy to pay. That was the final straw. The Syracusans and Agrocatani could no longer afford to keep this up. Most of the citizens of Akragas just up and left the very next day, and the Syracusan army actually had to lead them to the city of Gela, further down the southeastern coast of Sicily. With no resistance, Himilcar stormed the walls, looted the city, and ordered the execution of the remaining populace. According to Diodorus Siculus, he even burned down all the temples and took the wealth inside of them, just like Hannibal had done to Salinas and Himera. Again, we have to be very skeptical of the more violent or dishonorable, quote-unquote, aspects of this account. As Diodorus Siculus himself says, his primary source about all these events is a Sicilian Greek contemporary named Timaeus, who loathed the Carthaginians. In fact, according to Diodorus, Timaeus actually criticized all the historians who wrote about the Sicilian Wars before him for not vilifying the actions of Hannibal, Himilcar, and their armies to the same extent that he did. Of course the Carthaginians were by no means peaceful in their sackings of these cities, but neither were the Greeks. This is not a story of good versus evil. This is a story of human beings. But that's enough of me lecturing you on historiography. Let's return to the story, shall we? So it's been eight long months since Himilcar and Hannibal Mako arrived at Akragas with their army, and winter 
which in the Mediterranean is pretty mild compared to what I'm used to, is here. Time really does fly when you're stuck in your siege camp, slowly starving and dying of plague, doesn't it? Well, common sense dictates that you don't campaign in the winter, especially when you were just having supply problems not too long ago. So Himmelkar decides to stay in Akragas until spring. Meanwhile, a bonfire has been lit under the asses of the political leadership back in Syracuse. Think about it. No matter how many mercenaries or Syracusan hoplites they throw at the Carthaginians, they haven't won a major victory in years. Now their greatest ally and the second most powerful Greek city in Sicily, Akragas, has been completely abandoned by its original inhabitants. Refugees are pouring into the east, and they are enraged at the Syracusan army that ordered their evacuation in the first place. This severely weakens Syracuse's diplomatic reputation. I mean, if they can't even protect their allies, what good is it to side with them rather than Himilcar, who will probably pay you better to boot? Not only that, but everyone back in Syracuse itself was in a frenzy too. The infighting between pundits about how to proceed, because remember, we're talking about a period of democracy here, is at unprecedented levels. It's getting so bad that many of the wealthy elite are just up and leaving the city, heading for southern Italy, Magna Graecia, where they're a little farther removed from the prospect of dying in a brutal siege. This whole crisis is actually going to bring about the end of Syracusan democracy, but we'll get to that next time. That's when we'll introduce the next of our major players in this impenetrable web of wars, a guy by the name of Dionysius. That episode will be full of just as much political maneuvering, messy human motivations, and dramatic moments on the battlefield. Because we haven't even gotten to the end of the Second Sicilian War, and Dionysius is going to be at the center of a lot more than just the second one. Stay tuned on the next segment of Wonders of History. <laughs>